think we can go ahead and get started. There may be people filtering in, but we have a lot to cover, so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, good morning. My name is Russell Balikian. I'm one of the elders here at Delray, and uh, we're in a section of our foundations class going over eschatology, studying uh, the end times. So last week we talked about Christ's second coming, and uh, this morning we're going to get to talk about the final judgment. Um, I think it's one of the most terrifying and wonderful truths of, of human existence that, that one day the all-knowing, just, righteous, holy God will call us into his presence for judgment to give an account of, of ourselves and, and of what we've done with Christ. Um, and so the main idea that we're going to talk about is that Jesus Christ will righteously judge all people, fixing their eternal destiny based on whether they confess him as Lord and Savior and determining the reward or punishment based on their deeds. So as a quick overview, we'll see that apart from Christ, there would be no hope in this judgment. That on judgment day, the books will be opened and uh, everything done in secret will be made known. Uh, we would stand uh, utterly exposed before a holy God and, and all people, me, you, everyone, uh, would be rightly declared unrighteous and uh, deserving God's eternal wrath and hell. Uh, but this is why Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is, is so important because some people, those of us who, are, uh, who have been redeemed by God, who have put our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, will actually be able to face judgment with confidence. Uh, the confidence will be not in ourselves, not in anything that we've done, uh, but it'll be confidence in Christ because they know that their sins will have been covered and, and it'll be covered by the sacrifice even of the judge himself, which I think is a, a cool idea to think about. Um, and so they'll be found righteous through Christ and be granted eternal life through faith. And, and then because their debts will have been paid, they'll also be free to receive a reward uh, based on their deeds. So we often talk about how salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and that is absolutely true. Uh, but that doesn't mean that our deeds are irrelevant. We'll, we'll actually be called to account for our deeds, and there will be rewards. Christ will have covered the sin, and we'll actually be rewarded for the righteous things that we've done through, through his spirit. So... Um, so we'll actually receive a reward for those who are in Christ. Um, but those who are apart from Christ will not have this hope. We'll see that they'll actually be condemned before God as their sins are made known. Um, and the just punishment will be um, eternal conscious torment away from God in hell, um, separated from goodness and the light that comes from God. So, uh, so we'll talk about all that. Uh, in addition to God's judgment of people, we'll talk about how God will also judge Satan and even will judge death itself will throw them into the lake of fire and death will be no more. Uh, it's a wonderful thought. And then we'll see that God's righteous judgments, um, including his punishments, will actually all redound to his glory. So there's a purpose in the judgment that will glorify God. Uh, so that's what we're going to cover. You know, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a lot, but it'll be good, I, I hope and pray. And, and so it, just as a quick overview, we'll begin by talking about the organization of the judgment or, or the setup or the structure of it. We'll then consider the execution of the judgment on believers in, in Christ and on unbelievers. Then we'll consider the purpose of the judgment and then finally reflect on some practical applications for our lives now. Um, so before we dive in, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, giving us first your son. Uh, thank you that there is a hope uh, for this judgment that we're going to learn about that we can be found righteous through Christ who uh, fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life that we didn't, and uh, has, has made uh, an atonement for us that we can be found righteous by faith in him. Uh, we do pray that as we go through this, this discussion of the judgment that you would guide our discussion, that it would be honoring to you. We thank you for warning us ahead of time of the judgment, of the consequences, of the standard. I uh, pray that if there are any here who have not put their faith in Christ, that even through this time that they would uh, see what's, what's coming, and that they would, they would repent and put their faith in Christ. Um, pray that we would be encouraged and that we would uh, just better understand even what, what the purpose of this judgment is and how uh, it will redound to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a couple of preliminary matters. Uh, I, think, I think it's helpful just to talk about how do we approach and texts in the Bible that talk about the end times. Um, there's a couple of principles that I think will, will help kind of anchor us as we go through this. Uh, the first one should be listed there on your handout. If you didn't get a handout, it's in the back. Uh, we shouldn't shy away from, from these passages talking about the end times. Um, they're God's word given for a reason. Uh, so if someone can actually look up 
Revelation 1, verse 3. Go ahead and read that out loud. We'll be looking up a lot of scripture passages, so feel blessed free to... Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Yeah, so, so blessed are, are people who actually pay attention to the book of Revelation, right? Like that we're given this information uh, so that we can hear it, we can listen to it, and we can obey it. Um, so we don't want to obsess over speculation about details. But we also don't want to discount the clear truths that are in Scripture, including ones where we may not know exactly how the details will work out. And I think that's actually one way to help counteract this temptation to shy away from future-looking future texts, is just to be comfortable with the idea that we may not know all the details. And so what we'll do is we'll affirm what Scripture teaches, and, and then we'll be comfortable not being certain about exactly how that'll all you know, pan out. And then we can just look forward with anticipation to see what is God going to do? How, how is it going to pan out? And know that it's going to, to glorify him, whatever it does, or whatever it is. Um, and so I don't say that as an excuse to be lazy about studying the scriptures, but just, just as an encouragement that we don't have to have every detail all figured out or a complete eschatological framework in order to benefit from studying Revelation. Another, another aspect of future-looking texts is that we just want to approach in humility uh, some end times passages are reasonably subject to differing interpretations. Uh, and that's not to say that all interpretations are equally valid, but even among people who have a high view of scripture, who would agree with the centrality of the gospel, just trying to figure out how all this works, works out may, may look a little bit different for people, and that, that's okay. Um, we're affirming the truth of scripture, and uh, you know, we want to give grace to one another, and, and even in discussion with each other, for people who have different perspectives and have studied different things, we actually may be able to better inform our own views. So, so again, it's okay that there may be differing interpretations, as long as we're, what we're doing is affirming what we do see in Scripture. Uh, as with any passage, we always want to interpret uh, these passages in light of the full counsel of Scripture. We want to know what God's saying. It's kind of like a reporter taking things in context. You know, we want to understand Revelation. We want to understand the Gospels. We want to understand the Old Testament, how those link up, what God's doing. And finally, we want to be grateful that we have in God's Word uh, everything we need to stand before Him confident on Judgment Day. Um, that should cause us to praise Him and just to be grateful that we've been given uh, Revelation and other books that talk about what's going to happen in the end times. So before we actually dive into the final judgment, any questions or comments just on, on the framework for approaching these passages? Great. Okay, so organization of the final judgment. We're going to talk about how it's going to be set up, and then we'll actually talk about how, it's going to be, how judgment will be executed. Um, so we'll begin with the timing, uh, because I think the timing is going to inform other aspects of the judgment. Um, one thing I want to say at the outset is that this is also probably the most difficult aspect of the final judgment to pin down in terms of specificity. Um, so again, being okay with the idea that we may not be able to know all the answers. And even God I mean, tells us, like, we don't even know when Christ is returning, only the Father knows that. And so, you know, how, figuring out then even the details of the judgment is going to be difficult too. But there are some clear principles that we can know and affirm. Um, someone can go ahead and look up Acts 17. 30 through 31, we'll see the final judgment will occur on a day in the future that God has fixed. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Yeah. So the final judgment is separate from other temporal judgments that we see in Scripture. Um, it's a comprehensive judgment. Uh, it's the date on which God formally renders you know, to everyone his due. So, so we see, for example, in the garden that God will judge Adam and Eve. We'll see you know, in Noah's day that he will judge those people with the flood, but those are not the final judgment. There is a day where there's a full reckoning for everything that we've done in our lives. And so what we learn from that is that the final judgment is not an ongoing process. Uh, sometimes I think we, we think about 
heaven and the eternal state as being kind of a rolling admission where you, you die and then you go to judgment and then you go in. But what scripture teaches is that there is a, a day in the future. It's a final judgment. And so th that actually leads to an important side question of, well, so what happens when we die then before final judgment? Uh, we're not going to talk about this in detail, but the Bible teaches that our souls will go to an intermediate place uh, b before eternal, before the eternal state with the new heavens and the new earth, um, but not, you know, in our bodies here. So uh, for unbelievers who die, uh, they're going to go to a place that the Bible refers to as, as Hades or, or Sheol. That, and uh, we learn about this in Luke chapter 16 verses. <coughs> someone can actually flip to Luke 16, 22 through 26. <coughs> poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Great, thanks. So, so what we want to take from this is just that they're, when they die, they're, the rich man and Lazarus are carried to the, to this place where, and, and this we're going to talk about what believers, how believers, where believers go after they die, after Christ, but this is before Christ, and so you see that there's, um, or before Christ's death and resurrection, so you see that the unbeliever is in a place called Hades, where he's in anguish, he's in uh, torment and a flame, so there's this place, even before final judgment, before the eternal state called Hades, where people will go and await the final judgment. Uh, it will, for unbelievers, it will not be a place of, of comfort. It will not be a place of, of, yeah, it will not be kind of just, you know, your life ceases to exist, but you know, there's actually a conversation going on between the, the man in, in Hades and, and uh, the Lazarus who is at Abraham's side, and, and he's in anguish and, and in pain. So uh, that place, yeah, again, the Bible calls Hades. Uh, for believers in, in Christ, uh, the the intermediate state looks different. So uh, before Christ's death and resurrection, uh, they would go down to this intermediate place that, you know, there's a little bit of debate on the details of that, but after Christ's resurrection, uh, it says that, that people are actually gonna go and be in the presence of God. And so it's not the eternal state, but it is, it is a place of comfort and we see here in, in this passage, even before Christ's death and resurrection, that Old Testament saints were also in a place of, of comfort as compared to those who had not responded in faith to God. And so, you know, I don't, this is not really the point of this discussion, other than to say that there is coming a final judgment and that we're going to be in an intermediate state awaiting that judgment and it will be resurrected up to the judgment, which we're going to go into that later. But are there any questions about, yeah. It, just, just a quick comment. Because this is not mentioned that often in, in doing Christian theology, just a place to clarify, this, this is unlike, this is not purgatory, right? Yeah. Because like what Jesus talks about is that there is a, a fixed uh, destination, a fixed chasm. Yeah. So just in case anyone gets sort of confused of, is that intermediate state the same as not. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. <coughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're conscious and and in English. Yeah, uh, and and Hebrews nine twenty seven through twenty eight is going to say it's it's appointed to, to man to die once and after that to face <coughs> judgment. So this isn't a place where people are like sorting out what they think about God. Um, this is. This is a, a holding place waiting for judgment. I, I conceptualize it similar to, to even a jail awaiting trial. Um, it's, it's 
It's an intermediate place before judgment. So this is all, again, talking about the timing of the final judgment. Another clear thing we see in Scripture is, is that uh, the timing of the judgment in relation to other events, uh, the judgment's going to be, at least the great white throne judgment, which we'll see, talk about later, is going to be the last act before the eternal state. So you'll see it'll come after the millennium. Whatever your eschatological view is of the millennium, it'll come after the millennium. It'll come after Satan is defeated and cast into the lake of fire. And so the final judgment then becomes the way that God makes everything right as, as preparation for the eternal state. So we'll see this in Revelation uh, chapter 20 and 21. Um, if someone wants to read uh, verses 21, or chapter 21, verses 4 through 8, uh, we'll see that the new heavens and the new earth come, and they'll be perfect because God will have righted all wrongs. Thanks. So, so the point to take from that passage for purposes of the timing of the judgment is that people will have already been judged, and so as the eternal state comes, uh, it's going to be a place of, of perfection. It's the last act of God before, um, before ushering in the eternal state. Uh, there's differences of opinion in, in who's going to be part of that very last judgment, um, whether there's multiple judgments for believers uh, that will actually happen earlier, or whether all people are going to be part of the same judgment um, in, that, in that last act right before the eternal state. But that's one of those timing questions that we're not going to really venture into. It'll, it'll depend on your eschatological views. Uh, but what we do know is that there will be a, a time... Uh, where, where people will be brought before what the Bible describes in Revelation 20 is the great white throne where God will, will judge people. And that, that, one, that judgment comes after the millennium and, and before the eternal state. So uh, for, the, for the rest of this class, when, I, when we talk about kind of when judgment's going to occur, I'm just going to say judgment day. It's a good circular definition uh, where like you look at the dictionary and it defines the word by reference to the word that you're looking up. Um, so judgment day will be the day or the days on which judgment occurs. There, you know, depending on your eschatological view, that may occur you know, in part earlier and in part later, but we're going to be talking about the entire process for both believers and unbelievers. So it's not really going to matter for purposes of our discussion exactly those, those details. So are there any questions or comments about the, the timing of the final judgment? We're going to start to get into the substance of it a little bit more, but I think it's helpful to get the timing clear before we do because it's going to help figure out what's going on. So any questions or comments? Hey, Ross, a quick question. Um, so believers who pass, mm-hmm. they say they're in heaven, they have an immediate judgment at that point, and they go to heaven, but the people who are not believers are saying are held until their judgment day. Yeah, so, there, so there's in some sense a, a, dis, a judgment or a distinction drawn between believers and unbelievers. It's not the final judgment where we're brought to account for our, for our um, actions and, and even, you know, kind of receive the commendation maybe, depending on your eschatological view, um, what would actually happen as part of that initial separation. But there clearly is a separation between believers and unbelievers, even to figure out which aspect whether you're in Christ's presence in that intermediate state or whether you're in Hades in that intermediate state. So. Good question. Okay, so 
Next up is, is the summons. And what I mean by that is uh, it, the summons is in our legal system a, a document, actually, that, that calls people to court to, to appear. And so as a lawyer, I was just thinking about like part of this process of judgment is that God's going to summon people to judgment. And so what we'll see is that all people, believers and unbelievers, dead and alive, will be called forth to stand before God on judgment day. So Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean Great. Um, yeah, we can stop. We can stop there. Thanks. So, th what what he says is that we're all going to stand in judgment. Uh, Revelation twenty verse thirteen. If someone wants to read that verse, actually, let's do verses twelve and thirteen of Revelation chapter twenty. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Yeah, so this is the ultimate summons. Unlike the legal pieces of paper that we have, this God's summons will actually bring people from beyond the dead up to, up to judgment. There's an idea of some, some sort of resurrection where everyone, righteous or unrighteous, will be standing before God. And yeah, this will be the high and the low. There will be no one who's thought, you know, too high or too low would be above, this, above or below this judgment, which I think is really interesting when we think about, you know, the meaning of life. Um, if, you know, some people, if we're struggling with, you know, wh why am I here? What, what is the purpose? The idea that we're all high and low going to be giving an account of our lives to God, I think really should help us to understand there is significance that we're here for a purpose. That purpose is to glorify God. Um, and so even in this summons, I think we can, we can learn something about what God intends for us. Um, are there any questions about what it means that God will summon people to judgment? Okay, so next we're going to consider the judge, and you see I have in parentheses an S. Talk about that in just a second. Someone can pull up Matthew 25, 31 through 33, John 5, 22, and let's say Acts 10, 42. Someone have, who has Matthew? Okay, Mark's got Matthew. Who's got John? John 5.22. Johnny, thank you. And who's got uh, Acts 10.42? Okay, awesome. Thank you. Yep. So we see very clearly here that Christ will be the judge. John 5.22, who is Johnny? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Yeah, again, God the Son, Christ will be the judge. Alex? <coughs> and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Yeah, again, Christ will be the judge. There's many other passages that we could turn to 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 see that Christ will be the one bef before whom we, st we stand in judgment. Uh, the Bible also teaches that believers will have some role in judgment. So uh, Matthew 19, 28, um, Christ will say that, that 
the apostles will sit on 12 thrones judging 12 tribes of Israel. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Um, someone want to turn there and read that? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. So again, believers will have a role in judgment and judging angels and in judging the world. The Bible doesn't give a lot of details about what that's going to look like. Some have thought that it may not actually even be a, a, a judging role, that it would actually be sitting on and looking. I think this is one where, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm 100% certain, but based on what these passages are teaching and based on the fact that God has uh, delegated to people authority to, to rule and that there's this idea that people will have authority and be ruling even in the eternal state or, you know, with Christ. I think they're actually, believers will have some sort of role in helping Christ to, to judge. Um, and so that doesn't take away from Christ's authority, but, you know, the idea that he could delegate or he could, I don't know, I don't know what it'll look like, but the believers will have a role in that process. And I think that goes again to the, to the grandness of God's plan um, that we often you know, focus on our lives here and, you know, and we should because that matters. We're going to give account to what we've, for what we've done. But we shouldn't lose sight of the majesty of God's plan and what he has in store for those who love him. Uh, you know, Ephesians 3.20 says that he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Uh, and so the idea that we would even be participating in the administration of his justice uh, in the last days, I think speaks again to the grandness of, of God's plan and his love for his people. Power that, I mean, you think, so here's human beings that can judge and actually have, there's real consequences to that judgment and real authority in it. But then behind them, there's Christ, mm-hmm. who's authority to judge all. Mm-hmm. And then behind him is the Father, who's not even going to judge. Yeah. And it just, there's an infiniteness to the sense of power that's in that. Mm. When if, yeah. if this smaller person can judge you. Yeah. How much more he's more places removed in authority. Yeah. Um, and one that is so exalted and so high, he's not even going to speak. Yeah. Um, That's really good. Thank you. Uh, any other questions about or comments about who's who's going to do the judging? Okay. The witnesses. Uh, it appears that for unbelievers, at least, that there will be witnesses during the judgment. Uh, we're not going to read through all of these, but, but some of the witnesses would include uh, ancient people who will testify against the people of, of Jesus' generation who did not repent at his teaching. Uh, so there will, be, uh, there will be people, like the, he's, Christ says, like the Queen of the South, who, who came to hear Solomon. And, and he says, and now someone even greater than Solomon is here. And so they will actually rise up and, and testify against those people of that, that day. Uh, James 5 talks about uh, how worldly wealth could even be brought in as evidence against someone who has not repented and trusted in Christ, how defrauded people and harmed people could be brought in as, as witnesses to someone to, to, or against someone in judgment. Uh, Romans 2 talks about how the person's own conscience will either condemn or, or excuse them based on <coughs> what they know about about Christ and his and God's law and most importantly God himself and his word will be will be there so God, Christ will say I you know if you if you refuse to acknowledge me before men then I won't acknowledge you before the father but if you acknowledge me then I will that he'll say that his word will will judge people who have heard it uh, Matthew 6 talks about how the father sees what is what is done in secret and will reward um, and there's, there's other passages that are listed there on your handout where God, the all-knowing, omniscient God, will, will see what's done and will actually render a right judgment based on what he has seen. And so as a practical matter, I think what that means is that no one is going to be able to contest the justness of God's judgment. Um, this isn't a kangaroo court where you know, the judge renders an arbitrary decision, but there will even be evidence brought in um, and witnesses uh, in God's court. Uh, 
one question that I had as, as a lawyer was, is there going to be an accuser? Is there going to be a prosecutor there at, at the judgment? Um, you know, Satan's name means the accuser, the accuser or the adversary, and so I thought, well, maybe he would be there. Uh, I think the answer is actually that he won't. If you look at Revelation uh, 2010 especially, um, he's going to be preoccupied. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. So this isn't going to be kind of how we conceptualize a criminal prosecution where Satan is there pointing fingers. Like he's going to already have been judged and then it's just going to be us and God with no place to hide. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's also an important aspect of kind of how this, this judgment will be structured. Any questions about those things before we actually move into the execution of the final judgment? Just a brief comment, um, Russell, just that this, as you were describing it, just reminded me again of the great comfort of why the New Testament says, uh, don't take vengeance into your own hand. Vengeance mm. is mine, says the Lord. I will repay mm -hmm. that he alone will make all injustices just. Right. Yeah. It's just such a, a sweet reminder that no little injustice that's done against us where we might think we should solve it now, mm -hmm. it will be revealed at that day. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, and one, yeah, one of the purposes of judgment is for God to be glorified in his justice for every single little slight or wrong. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, Michael? Just on the analogy to like human judgment and the final judgment, mm -hmm. like human judgment, we're trying to figure out what the truth is. Mm -hmm. Right. This is our best guess. This will probably happen. It's not going to be that way at all, right? In the final judgment, where God knows every thought and intent and heart. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great. And even with Satan not there, like the prosecutor's there to help establish the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. The truth is already been established. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So in our in our kind of human criminal justice system, the way we set it up is that you have two sides so that the judge can try to figure out what the truth is. There's no need for mm -hmm. Satan to be there as the accuser because God knows what the truth is. And mm -hmm. so it's just a matter of, of rendering judgment. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Thank you. All right, so the execution of the judgment. If someone could read uh, Daniel 7, 9 through 10, and if someone else could flip to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. So whoever has Daniel can go ahead and read that now. As I looked, thrones and places, thrones were placed, and ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Yeah. So the picture of the final judgment. What we're going to see in this Revelation passage is that judgment will involve basically two sets of determinations. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. Uh, one is eternal life versus eternal punishment, because we are all eternal beings. And so what, are we going to be with God forever or away from God forever? And then the second determination for believers is going to be the degree of reward. For non-believers will be the degree of punishment. Uh, so someone can go ahead and read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Great, thanks. And so from Daniel, what we learn from this is there's this other book. In addition to the books that are open, there's this book that's the book of life. That book of life is going to determine whether people go into the lake of fire or into uh, eternal, the eternal kingdom with Christ. 
but then these other books are going to play the role in, in determining the level of reward or punishment. So we're going we're gonna to dive in. Um, the judgment for believers, uh, as we just said, is going to be the, the eternal state of people who believe in Christ. So when I say believers, I mean people who have repented of their sin, who have trusted Christ for salvation uh, because he died in, in our place. People who believe that and who are not counting on their own righteousness before God, but on Christ's righteousness, their names are the ones who are going to be written in the book of life. Uh, could someone turn to First uh, John uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13? Yeah, through verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Right. Thank you. So when you hear about this book of life, I think the first question that should go through all of our minds is, is my name in that book, <laughs> right? Like, how do I know that my name is in that book? First John answers that, that question, that if we believe in God the Son, if we believe that Christ sacrificed himself for us and we have put our faith in him, our name is in that book. That's a promise that can't be taken away. And so the, the reason I wanted to make sure we included verse 13 is John says that you may know that you have life, that you may know that your name is in that book. And so for believers who have, who have repented and turned to Christ, we can face judgment in confidence knowing that when the book of life is, is open that our name will be found in there. That has nothing to do with the works that we've done it has nothing to do with, with how good we might think we would be. It is have we rightly related to Christ? Is he the Lord of our lives? Um, and it so... It's that we believed and then God scribbled our name in a book. Yeah. Um, it's that he wrote our name in a book for the foundation of the world. And yeah. He brought us to faith. Yeah. So to your point, it's in believing. That's how we know. Yeah. Oh, I was appointed for this. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and and so, you know, another another aspect of that that we, if someone could look at Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three, we should not expect to find our our name in the book just because we've gone to church, just because we have been involved in ministry. So like even the staff pastors cannot point to their position at Delray Baptist Church as evidence that their name should be in that book, right? Like God, God has, as John said, written that book before the foundation of the world, and that will be assessed by whether uh, we have put our faith, well, yeah, our, na our name will be in the book if we have put our faith in Christ. So if someone can read Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Yeah. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, I will, do, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, so I think the, the warning there is that, again, we can't point to our works, even good works, even works where we're doing things where we think we're actually helping or like trying to glorify God on that day. The warning there is that uh, we must have repented and put our faith in Christ. Those people are the people whose, na whose names are going to be in that book. Um, so that's, that is going to set judgment for eternity. You'll see there's no aspect of works that's involved there. Uh, but there is also a, a judgment regarding the reward for believers, and this is going to be based on what I think can only be described as just the most amazingly comprehensive review of works, like even stuff that we've probably forgotten that we have done, God remembers, and that, that's going to be written. And so there will be a reward. And the reason that we can be rewarded is that, as Romans says, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if, if we were to have the actual book opened of our lives, we, there'd be a lot of sin in there, right? There'd be a lot of condemnation. Christ has covered that. 
And so Paul's going to say, like, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who justifies. And so we're actually going to be able to receive a reward because of Christ's grace to us. And, and that, that will actually be based on this, the works that we've done. So if someone can bring up 2 Corinthians 5.10. And someone else can do 1 Timothy 5.25. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Thank you. 1 Timothy 5.25. Yeah, thank you. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we're all going to be before the judgment seat of Christ and receive what's due, whether good or evil. So that's, that's one aspect of the comprehensiveness. And I think 1 Timothy amplifies that by saying that there are good works that may even not be known that will be made known uh, on, in judgment. And for, for those who believe in Christ, that will result in a reward. And so I've got a lot of verses listed there in the handout talking about different types of of rewards that will be, that will be, or I guess different types of works that would be a basis for a reward that, that God's promised. Um, I'm not going to go into all those. Feel free to look those up. Um, but gospel ministry, suffering, faithfulness to to Christ, and just other other good works, giving a, a cup of water to a to one who who is ministering the gospel. Like God, is, it's just very minute. <laughs> Um, that God is going to bestow his blessings on his people. Um, so feel free, I mean, just like go through those and just think about how, how yeah, just the nature of that reward. Um, in terms of what the reward is, it's at the very least to be in, in God's presence, to partake in God, to, to see his face, to enjoy the eternal kingdom, to enter into the master's joy after receiving commendation, um, maybe even like to be where we're seated in relation to Christ, like when, when, uh, James and John's mother asks about who's going to be at the, at the son's right and left hand. He doesn't say, well, no one's going to be there. He says, it's not mine to give out. And so, uh, and then Paul talks about the crown of righteousness. I think there may also be other rewards that are suited for enjoyment in the eternal kingdom. That when, when Jesus talks about laying up treasures in heaven, that very well could mean like treasures in heaven. That doesn't add to God because these would be coming from God. They'd be out of God's graciousness and goodness. And we're going to have resurrection bodies in a new heaven and new earth. So I think it very well could actually mean some sort of reward. I don't, I don't know exactly what that would look like. But the point is that there will be a full reckoning for all of the good works that believers have done. And that there, there will be reward given for that. Uh, the other aspect of this that you know, might be challenging, but I think is what the Bible teaches, is that not all believers will be rewarded equally, but everyone will be rewarded justly and graciously. Um, so you see all throughout Scripture, like in, in Matthew and in Luke, persecution produces a great reward. There's Matthew 10 talks about a prophet's reward. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can see in, in Matthew 25 and Luke 19 that to the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, suggesting that there's differentiations uh, between even believers. And I, I think well, that strikes us as odd because we think about it through a sinful lens of like, oh, well, then won't we be jealous or won't we feel incomplete? But no, like sins get, remember, this is why we t covered the timing, like the final judgment will have done away with all of the sin and, and the death. And so when we enter into that eternal state and have this reward, we will glorify God for the justness and the graciousness of his reward, having given to everyone what they're, what's due or, or what he's promised. And we'll even rejoice if, if we see someone you know, the, that is ahead of us in, in a reward who deserves that reward. Like We will rejoice and give glory to God for that, not be jealous. Um, and so I, I think that we don't have to just divide believers and, and unbelievers into just these two really rough groups, but Scripture actually distinguishes between the reward. 
I, would, I don't think that we should take that to mean that God's going to be in our debt. Um, in Luke 17, you know, talks about the, the, a servant who comes in and, um, you know, expects to be kind of rewarded and is like, no, you're a servant, you know, we're unworthy servants, um, you know, we shouldn't expect that. But yet God in his grace through Christ is not, has nonetheless promised that and has made it even an incentive for living. So there's nothing unspiritual with wanting to store up treasures in heaven. Like that's a promise of God. Um, and it reflects a faith in God, and it causes us to relate rightly to him. So, we, so even though we shouldn't believe that God is somehow in our debt, we should nonetheless take that promise seriously, and it should inform our living. Um, I'm going to go, oh yeah. I think it's an interesting, helpful point. I mean, everybody struggles with slightly different things. There are those people who, you know, struggle with this mental idea of like, if you're saved, then that's it. What's the point of striving? Right, like, you know, it doesn't produce anything different, and, and that's clearly a fallacy, right? That's wrong. And so, you know, I think it, it is a helpful point to consider that there are incentives, there is a point to continue striving, even on this side of heaven, yeah. right? Or even if we're never perfect, even if we never do it perfectly, right? But sanctification, like, they, they, these all things come with rewards, and they're recognized by a perfect judge one day. Yeah, yeah, that's great, thank you. I was just curious, like, with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and, like, mm-hmm. the ones who worked last getting the same as the ones who worked first, like, how that works into it. Too. Yeah, it's a great question. So if, if you look on the handout, I believe that I have that passage listed as, as in the first part of the judgment about the, the kind of rough, like, are, are you in eternity with God or eternity uh, apart from God? And so in that sense, even those who repent on their, death, on their deathbed will receive that same reward of being in God's mm-hmm. presence. Um, but they may not necessarily receive the same uh, reward of the second part based on their works. So, yeah. Just again on the, on the rewards, you know, I, I think I like what you said, how you know, we will re- all be rejoicing in God, and it's, it's a privilege <coughs> to have these things. And I think of like Romans 11, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. So these, even these rewards ultimately were brought by his spirit and in their, faith, in their faithfulness. And so it's just, it's this blessing that they get to give this back to the Lord. There's mm-hmm. this, this kind of the idea of the yeah. crowns, you know, casting their crowns before the Lord mm-hmm. in the earlier revelation. So that it's, it's, the, it's the blessing of being able to have receive these things and then ultimately to give, give them to the Lord in, in, in for his grace yeah. and glory. Yeah. In the community, I was even thinking to the community of the saints, it's this thought of, okay, we get to have to get these rewards and then go hole up somewhere by ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, what are we going to be doing with each other? What, we're going to be sharing rewards. Right. There's going to be very much a fellowship of the saints in the presence of God. So yeah. that, um, there'll also be great generosity. A lot of what we've been given is there to be given. Yeah, so. yeah. that's great. Thank you. Um, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and talk about the judgment for unbelievers. Uh, this is a very sobering and striking contrast, even as it parallels with the judgment for believers. Um, you know, just as, for, as was the case for believers, there'll be two basic determinations, um, your eternity. But in this case, instead of rewards, it would be the, the degree of punishment. Uh, and so we've already talked about how God will separate people broadly into these, into these two categories. There's this idea of the, the sheep and the goats, um, the wheat and the weeds, the, the good fish and the bad fish, that Christ is going to render that separation. That will be based on whether our name is in the book of life, again, whether we've repented and, and put our faith in Christ. Um, and so it's going to become for the unbeliever very quickly a judgment about works, a very piercing judgment about works, because they will not have Christ to have atoned for their sins. And so uh, Galatians 3.10 uh, talks about how like, if, we're go- if you're going to try to satisfy the law before God, like we have to satisfy the entire law. There's no one who's going to, to satisfy that standard. The Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and, and even Romans 5 says we've even inherited the sin nature of Adam. And so like just right off the bat, we're disqualified from satisfying that standard. And so we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that we'll be able to have you know, this good rhetoric and you know, confuse God into letting us into heaven. But the nature of this judgment 
is going to be piercing at a level that we just can't even imagine. It's like Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 talks about how the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So remember at the garden, how Adam and Eve hid from God because they recognized that they were naked? Um, we're going to be that level of exposed at judgment for the unbeliever who's outside of Christ. That is the level of penetration. There'll be nothing to hide behind. Um, Matthew 12 talks about giving an account for every careless word. Luke 12 says that everything will be made public. Psalm 130 kind of encapsulates this well, I think, when it says, like, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, which he will for the, for the person outside of Christ, O Lord, who could stand? Just the, the level of, of ruin that the person outside of Christ will feel standing before judgment. And that's why Galatians 2.16 says that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is why Christ's sacrifice is so important, because he did satisfy the law. And by faith, his righteousness can be imputed to us. Uh, so some might question, so I have written there on a handout very quickly that all are, no one is, has an excuse, that all are without excuse before God, that even those who have not you know, studied under scripture are going to still see evidences of God in creation. They're going to be accountable for what they know and, and have God's law written on their heart, like the natural law. And so they will still, you know, it, Romans 2 is going to say that people will perish apart from the law. And so all have sinned. Um, God may righteously, graciously, you know, save even some people through Christ. And we can talk about that later. But the point here is, is that, um, that apart from Christ, apart from faith in, in Christ and in God, that we will all perish, either under the law, like the Mosaic law, if we have that, or, or from what we've been given in natural revelation. And so some might question whether that's a just punishment. Um, this is not one of those areas where you know, there's room for kind of <coughs> ambiguity. Like scripture clearly teaches that eternal punishment is from a just God. Um, that it's separation from God and, and conscious torment in, in hell. And I've got some passages written there that we're not going to go through right now, but feel free to look those up. I really think it's, it's something that is inescapable. And I think in, ter- in terms of what Scripture teaches, and that's where we want to rest our conclusions is on Scripture, but I also think that you know, we can, it makes sense that you know, the severity of a crime, the punishment that's deserving depends you know, in part on the severity of the crime and, and in part on the person that's offended. And so when we think about sin as necessarily reflecting a rejection of God's rule over us, and we think about who God is, the eternal, perfectly good, holy, righteous creator, we think about what the nature of that sin is, that eternal punishment away from God out of his presence and all of the goodness that he offered is a just punishment. Um, and so if, if, it, if we're struggling with that, then maybe we actually don't have a high enough view of God and a high enough view of our sin against God. I'm not suggesting that it's easy, and we can talk about that, but I do think that scripture is, is clear about uh, pu- that aspect of, of the punishment. And we're gonna talk next week about the eternal state, and so we'll get into that in more detail. But uh, There's also a judgment regarding the degree of punishment that, uh, Scripture teaches that the precise degree of punishment will not be the same for everyone. There's general statements about giving to people according to what they've done. There's also specific statements about punishments for false teachers, for causing children to sin. Uh, Jesus will refer to the outer darkness. Um, that you know, even those who know their master's will and don't do it will receive more blows than those who, who do not know it. They'll receive fewer blows. Uh, that for Judas it would, be, would have been better if he had not been born, uh, that those who taste the goodness of Christ and, and fall away will receive a severe punishment. And so that shouldn't, that shouldn't uh, you know, cause us to think like, oh, well, maybe it actually won't be that bad. Like it's still a separation from God. It's kind of still those two rough categories of being eternally separated from God. But for some there will be uh, an even, you know, a greater degree of punishment. Um, So, are there any questions or comments on the judgment of unbelievers? Yeah. Russell, I'd say, you know, one thing I'd add to this is that, you know, the entirety of the Old Testament, Amos, Obadiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, 
they're all pointing to the last judgment, mm -hmm. the final, the, you know, this day of judgment. They repeat this phrase again and again and again. Um, and, and, and the judgment, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of what's to come, the final day of judgment. And sadly, I think that um, what, what is, um, I guess, convicts me is that this is against most of the people of God. Yeah, there's again this this idea that for those who have been given much, much is expected, and, and that you know judgment will reflect that. It's good. Um, so quickly, we've talked about, we've touched on the defeat of Satan and the beast and the false prophet when we read through <coughs> Revelation. Just just want to emphasize again that you know it's not just judgment of people; it's judgment of everything that's evil. That God's going to be shown to be completely just and righteous, and is going to right all wrongs by throwing the devil into the lake of fire, by throwing death into the lake of fire. They'll be rejoicing over that um, because God will have defeated all of his enemies. Um, and then after that will come the eternal state. And so, you know, briefly, because I know we need to wrap up quickly here. So the purpose of the judgment then, there's a couple that it will show God to be both just and the justifier. Um, just as ha just like on at the cross when Jesus is, or when God's you know justness and graciousness was displayed at the same time, at, at judgment the same idea will be there that God will be both just in judging people and that He will ju the judge Himself will have justified His people. Um, we, we read in Philippians two nine through eleven that Jesus will will also be glorified and exalted that every knee will bow before Jesus and so Jesus is Lord of everyone right now. The question is, when do we recognize that? Do we recognize that now, or do we recognize that at judgment when it's too late? Uh, another purpose of the judgment is that it will usher in the eternal state again, that, that heaven will be truly perfect, that rights will have, or wrongs will have been righted, that the judge will have sat in judgment, and for each aspect of, of sin will have given due recompense. And so there will be rejoicing in, in that, and, and then we'll be able to spend eternity with God for those who are in Christ. And so application, are we prepared? Are we prepared for judgment? That's the first question that we all should ask. Like, what, what, where do we stand with Christ? Have we repented and, and put our faith in Christ? Uh, another, another aspect of application is that the final judgment should fuel our evangelism for those who are believers, that it should cause us to want to share the gospel with as many people as possible. It should even be part of our evangelism, this is an important part of, of the gospel, that there is consequence for sin and there is a way, that, that God has made a way by grace through faith to, to avoid final, or, yeah, final condemnation. Uh, should allow us to respond to grace in, with, in grace to wrongdoing, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's on the last day, that he'll, he'll pay back. Uh, it should spur us to God-glorifying actions, knowing that there is a reward for believers who are in Christ. Um, that we can store up treasure in heaven. And, and finally, uh, it should just cause us to, to praise God. Again, this is all going to go to God's glory. And, and he's, he's told us, you know, what we need to know to respond rightly to the final judgment. And on the last day, we're going to give praise to God for the justness and graciousness of his judgment. Any final thoughts before we close in prayer? Yeah, so the final, the final judgment and the consequences are yeah, an important aspect of evangelism. And not something that we should be scared to, to teach lovingly but truthfully. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for giving us your word, for telling us what to expect on the last day. We do pray that uh, we would have confidence for those of us who are, are in you, that we would uh, just 
look forward to that day where you're going to right all wrongs and where we're going to be able to spend eternity with you. Lord, if there's any that are hearing this who, who do not know you, we do pray that in your, in your graciousness that you would move them to repent, that you would move them to trust in you so that they can stand on that last day um, as, as you render judgment. Do thank you that you are loving, that you are gracious, and that you are just. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.